0: Our second lesson is taken from Paul's letter to Timothy, the fourth chapter. Let me begin reading at verse 1, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 following. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teaching, teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure affliction, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give to me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me, for Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus unto Delmata. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. Antichicus have I sent to Ephesus. The cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, bring with thee, and the books, but especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works. Of whom be thou ware also, for he hath greatly withstood our words. At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray, God, that it may not be laid to their charge. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known. And that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work. And will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom. To whom be glory forever and ever. Salute Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus abode at Corinth. But Trophimus have I left at Miletum sick. Do thy diligence to come before winter. Amen. May God bless to our hearts this reading from his word. I've been in Montreat for 17 autumns as preacher behind this pulpit. In that time, six different times I have spoken on the theme Come Before Winter. Usually, I try to rearrange the illustrations, and I always like to give credit where credit is due and that is Dr. Clarence Edward McCartney, who has now long been with Jesus and who is one of the greatest preachers of the gospel that I uh, have ever read. I have heard him on tape. I never met him in person, although I did visit his church and tried to hear him. He spoke once in Anderson, well, he spoke more than once in Anderson Auditorium here in Montreat. Dr. McCartney used to be the minister of the Arch Street Church in Philadelphia. He served only three churches in his entire lifetime. He was a bachelor. He served first the First Presbyterian Church in Patterson, New Jersey, then he moved to the Arch Street Church in Philadelphia. Now, we talk often about Philadelphia lawyers, but if you really wanted to know the truth, it's more impressive to get a Philadelphia doctor because there there are many medical schools in the city of Philadelphia, Thomas Jefferson Medical uh, School, um, the University of Pennsylvania Medical School, Uh, the Heinemann Medical School, uh, and others. And so Dr. McCartney, in 1915, on October the 10th, saw the very blue skies and the brilliance of the color of the leaves and began to think about the changes of life. As he looked at the leaves in all of their glory, and he thought about them as they were hectic red and green and brown and orange, Uh, he, and yellow, he thought soon, just so soon, autumn will pass. It's a very beautiful season, but it will pass away. And as he was reading, he read this portion from 2 Timothy, which to me has always been a very moving chapter in the Bible. These are among the very last words that the Apostle Paul ever wrote. They may have been written only days before he was put to death. And they have a ring of solemnity and a ring of grandeur about them that is gripping and that is always good for us to reconsider. I myself can look back to a time 29 years ago, this October, when I walked into West Texas State University's library and picked up the Fort Worth Star Telegram and read about my favorite football team and some people that I knew who played for TCU. And as I finished reading the sports page and wondered what else I would do, my eyes fell upon a book. I opened the book and in the providence of God found this message by Clarence McCartney, Come Before Winter. I'll never forget that day because of the profound impression it made upon me. Because he spoke of our responsibilities which we have to our loved ones and friends. Because he spoke of our need to reform our characters and amend them while we have an opportunity. And above all, he spoke of the voice of Christ calling to us. As I read those words, I remember writing a letter to my own mother because I'm always delinquent in writing home as many of us are. And I remember that afternoon when I went back home uh, to the little house where I live, that the water that had been running that morning in the uh, gutter alongside the street had frozen to ice. We had what is called in Texas a blue norther. If you've ever lived in the panhandle of Texas, you know that there is nothing between you and the North Pole but a barbed wire fence, and most of the time it's blown down. And it's just like a bowling alley all the way up to Canada. And when those northers come blowing in, they can change the uh, climate very quickly. And they, they become, it becomes cold, tremendously cold, just, uh, just real soon. Well, this caused, I suppose, the sermon to imprint itself upon my mind. And year after year, I've had people ask me if I would preach it again. Now, I've tried to combine it today with some new material to make it interesting for those who may have heard it before. But first of all, let's begin with the scripture. We have this manacled penman whose name is Paul, this battle-scarred soldier for Jesus, who himself had at one time been the greatest opponent of Jesus Christ, but who had been met by the Lord Jesus in an encounter on the road to Damascus, that caused him to fall to the ground and ask one of the greatest questions of the Bible and of life, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Have you ever asked that question? Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Last Sunday we saw a lawyer who entered into a specious argument with Jesus, saying to him, who is my neighbor, hoping that he could escape his responsibility to any human being that was in need and after Jesus had finished teaching him the parable of the Samaritan this lawyer learned that the whole wide world was his neighbor and that he had an area of responsibility that extended to every creature upon the planet earth. I am glad that the selectors of the Nobel Prize this year are granted one of those prizes to Mother Teresa that Sweet Christ-like soul, who has gone into the filthy, wretched slums of Calcutta and worked for Jesus Christ in relieving the poverty and disease and wretchedness there. It's time that we offered some sort of prize for this kind of activity, which does indeed promote peace. And she has done it in the name and for the sake of her Savior, Jesus Christ, for now 30 years. Well, the lawyer who asked the question, who is my neighbor, got an answer that must have made him feel uncomfortable when he realized what his responsibilities now would be. And it makes us smart some too, when we realize that we too have that same area of responsibility and that we are to carry it out. There were other questions that we looked at, such as the question that God asked of Cain, uh, of Adam, where art thou when he had sinned? And of Cain, where is thy brother? And his great answer, am I my brother's keeper? And then we see Paul on that road to Damascus saying to the one who spoke to him, what wilt thou have me to do? I heard a voice, said Paul. I saw a light and I obeyed. And in this chapter he tells us he has been faithful. Have you Heard the voice of Christ. Have you heard him say to you, What will you have me to do? And have you been faithful? Have you been faithful to the light that you have received? Have you been faithful to carry it out? Well, now when he comes to the end of his days, he writes to his young son in the faith, Timothy, whom we know from other scriptures must have been a person of a sickly nature, who was also quite timid himself. Uh, And so Paul writes to him in the earlier part of this letter telling him to stir up the gift of God which is in him, rekindle that flame of faith. And then now when he comes to the close of his letter, he uses a, a statement that would be found in a courtroom. I charge you. I lay a solemn charge upon you before Almighty God who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Christ is coming back again. And in view of the fact that he is coming back again, said Paul, you must preach the word. Now it's important for us to remember this that we must never lose our sense of urgency about the gospel. There are people who try to tell us, well, Paul, when he first wrote his letters to Thessalonica, he thought that the coming of Jesus was imminent, and therefore he was a little panicky in describing the second coming of Christ. Well, here he is with the last letter that he ever wrote, and he's just as urgent as he was then. And the only thing that I can tell you an explanation of it is that Jesus is 2,000 years closer now than he was then. And it may be today, who knows? I charge you before Jesus Christ who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing, that is, at his coming back again, to preach the word. What would he be talking to Timothy about when he said to preach the word? to foretell the word, and this is not simply that which is laid upon those of us who are ordained to the Christian ministry, but every Christian has the responsibility of proclaiming the word. Mother Teresa is proclaiming the word. Every witness of Jesus is bearing a testimony to him in proclaiming the word. Our friend Michael, when she stood in the presence of the congregation today, To acknowledge the faith which had been hard for her to come by but which she has submitted to was proclaiming by this act of obedience to Christ the word so that someone else might have courage to investigate the claims of Christ too. When you come here to worship God and to hear his word you are proclaiming his word. When you take up the Holy Supper, you are proclaiming his death until he comes. Every day that you live, every act of love and mercy that you do, in the name and for the glory of Jesus Christ, is proclaiming the word. And it's important for us to know it. Let me say at this point how important the reading of the scriptures is. I'm so glad that the brother from the Gideons was here today. I can remember some years ago when it was my privilege to go to uh, Huntsville, Alabama and to speak in a Presbyterian church there that was located not far from Red River, from the Redstone Arsenal. And uh, one of the people in the congregation, one of the elders asked me if I would like to meet Werner Van Braun. And I said, of course, I would like to meet Werner Van Braun. I had read much about him one of the great scientists who helped us in the development of the rockets that have since gone to the moon. And so they took me out to the arsenal to meet Werner Van Braun. I had remembered cutting out little things about him. I had remembered reading about him an interesting thing which I wanted to corroborate by a personal word from him. I had read that when he was a young man, he had been so engrossed in science that he had no use for anything else, so he put no time into the study of his relationship to God. Always interested in the making of bigger and better and more powerful rockets, this is what he did. He paid no attention to the political scene and scarcely realized that a monster like Hitler began to move into power and control. And that the V-2 buzz bombs which he created would be raining down terror and carnage and hell upon the city of London. And then when the war was finished and he was soon to be captured, he and some of the other scientists got together. They knew that they had had all that they wanted of a dictatorship. And they figured out a way whereby they could surrender themselves and their scientific knowledge to the Americans. And so they got away from the Russians and went to the Americans who promptly and immediately transported them to the United States and carried them to El Paso, Texas, to the White Sands Proving Grounds, where they were kept there in a sort of colony. Werner van Braun said that as the word began to come out of the horrors that Hitler had perpetrated against the Jews, that his faith was completely shattered to pieces, that he had always thought of man as evolving into something better and better. But now he came to believe that man was not intrinsically good, but that man was intrinsically evil, that those who had caused these terrors had not been the unlearned and ignorant savages of Asia and Africa, but they had been the most brilliant scientists upon the face of the earth. Yet they were ethical infants. They had no desire for what was right, nor did they care, but obliterated people. And Van Braun began to look for God. He said that one day as he drove from his work at White Sands Proving Ground, he heard singing, singing with joy of Christian hymns and spiritual songs, and he saw a battered old yellow church bus. And he said he just followed the bus in its car, and it weaved its way into one of the poorer sections of El Paso and Park. And there disembarked from this bus, working men in overalls, people in plain starched, uh, garments little children that were barefooted and they came inside a white framed church that happened to be a Nazarene church and Braun said that he was just drawn to go into the church and he sat in the back and he listened to them sing and he heard their testimonies, and their fervent prayers even their emotion appealed to him And when he left that church that day, he said these people must be what the early Christians must have been like. He had to take a trip across the country. And when he went across the country, he noticed that there was a a Bible in the hotel room where he was staying, a Gideon Bible. He opened the Gideon Bible and he began to read those matchless golden words of Jesus. And as he began to read the words of Jesus, and to think again about God in the world to come, something of the puzzles of life began to fit together in him. And so he said that when he, I asked him if he joined the Lutheran Church when he got to, Red, uh, to Huntsville, Alabama, and he said no, there were three Lutheran churches, and they were all fighting over which one would get him. So he joined the Episcopal Church <laughs> instead. But you see, his his reading of the Bible was what got to him. I don't know if you are old enough to remember a program called Information, Please, but I can certainly remember it because in the days when all the entertainment we had was radio and an occasional uh, nickel picture show, you saw a short subject that was directed by Clifton Fadiman, who was quite a, a scholar, called Information, Please. He has a book called A Lifetime Reading Plan. And in this lifetime reading plan, he discusses 100 of the most important books that have have to be read by any truly educated man. And then Clifton Fadiman writes these words, I have not listed the Old and the New Testaments. The Bible, of course, is more important than any other book on the list, influencing constantly and deeply the lives of all Westerners, including those who, such as the Communist claim, to be atheist, But I have assumed that anyone who would read these books on this list is already familiar with the Bible. Mr. Fadiman is assuring us of much, for the wellspring of Western life and ethics comes from the truth which has been revealed to us from Mount Sinai to the Sermon on the Mount to the Magna Carta, the truths, that come out of this bible are great truths that help us to learn the goodness and the mercy the law and the love and the order of god and to bring the world into some kind of order and so then paul writes to timothy to preach the word to be instant in season and out of season he tells him to reprove to rebuke and exhort with all long suffering and doctrine for the time will come, he says, when they will not endure sound teaching, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, succumbing to any fad that happens to come by. They will turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions. He had to go through afflictions. He had himself inflicted terrible punishment on believers in Jesus Christ. And then he learned himself what Jesus' beatitude, blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, meant. Then do the work of an evangelist. Take the good news. The gospel is not bad news, the gospel is good news. Make full proof of thy ministry. And then listen to this line For I am now ready to be offered. He looks upon himself as a sacrificial victim about ready to be offered, that soon Nero's court will convene, and he knows that his death is imminent, and the time of my departure is at hand. The word departure is at hand is like the casting off of the, of the ropes and the boat is beginning to go out to sea. His flight has been called, and he is waiting to board it. And then he says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course like an athlete who starts out on that long run. I've completed it and I have kept the faith. What tremendous words these are. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me at that day and not to me only but unto all them also that love his appearing. He thought about the Olympic runners. We'll have uh, Olympic Uh, sports people in Lake Placid in New York this year they received a garland back in Paul's day when they run a race and many a little town who had sent a runner all the way to compete in the Olympics when that runner came back and distinguished his city by having won the crown they would take down a section of the town wall so that he might come through a gate that had never been entered in through before to honor him And Paul is thinking of a greater honor that comes, that Jesus Christ will give a crown of righteousness, not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing, who look forward to his coming. Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. He speaks again of this fact. And then he must list that Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. There's a whole sermon in that. Demas must at one time have been a great worker for the gospel, but the vision for Jesus Christ grew dim in him, and Demas forsook Paul, having loved this present world. The others were away on Christ's business, and only Luke is with me. I've often thought that perhaps this is why Dr. McCartney used this particular text here only Luke is with me. Luke is a physician. And a man is fortunate if when he comes into the straits of life, he has a few good friends. And Paul had that friend who is willing to be your friend if you will let him be before you leave this chapel today, Jesus. And then he had this friend, Luke, who was with him. Luke, the doctor. The physician is sometimes the first face that is seen at birth and the last face that is seen at death. And then Paul, not holding a grudge, but remembering Mark who had deserted him, says, take Mark and bring him with thee. In one of the other translations it says, I can always use a man like him. He is profitable to me for the ministry. They had put aside their differences. It's getting cold in Rome, and so he says, take the cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus. And when you come, bring with you. And the books. He wants his copies of the sayings of jesus he wants his greek old testament but especially the parchments. maybe these were letters that he had written or perhaps drafts of the gospel according to luke that luke had written he has been maltreated alexander the coppersmith had done him much evil and he warns timothy about him and then he says a pathetic thing at my first answer when he came to court No man stood with me, but all men forsook me. Isn't that pitiful? I pray that God may not lay this to their charge. He forgives them. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that that by my preaching the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion, And then he goes on to say to Timothy again, Do thy diligence to come before winter. Now, why before winter? Because if he does not come before winter, he is in Ephesus. When he goes down to Troas to pick up that cloak, and when he goes over to the port, if he waits too long, he'll find a sign that says, No shipping until spring. It means that if he does not go then, He will not be able to go until that winter is past. And Paul has a premonition that he may not be alive to see another spring. And he wants Timothy to come to him. We might wonder if Timothy did go to him immediately. Or if perhaps Timothy said, well, I have other things to do. I'm busy here and there about affairs of the church, then I'll go. And then when he got the stuff together, the books, the parchments, the cloaks, And went down, they said, there are no more ships, you'll have to wait till spring. And then he waited, and when spring came, he made his way to Rome. He came up the Appian Way. He found the Mamerton prison, which I have visited myself. He asked the jailer, I've come to see the prisoner Paul. And the jailer cursed and swore, we have no prisoner by that name here. And then he remembered that at the close of that letter there were the names of some people like Linus and Claudia and Ebulus that were living there in Rome. So he looked up these believers and they said, you must be Timothy. Every single time he heard the jailer's key turn in the lock in the door, he thought you were coming. The last words that he ever said before they led him out to the place of execution was give Timothy my love. Oh, Timothy, why didn't you come sooner? Now, I don't think that happened. I think Timothy must have gone. But this tells me that there are things that I must do while I have the opportunity to do them. If you have a responsibility to your mother, if you have a responsibility to your father, if you have a responsibility to other friends, discharge those responsibilities while you have the opportunity to do so. This time next year, the date of 1979 may be carved upon their stone that marks their grave, so don't let that pass. Then if there are reformations that should be made in your conduct or in your character, don't put that off. Take advantage of the opportunity that God gives you. Ask for the Holy Spirit's gracious help, and His Spirit has been promised to help you And he will help you. And then thirdly, in in closing, the voice of Christ. The voice of Christ is calling. Come unto me, said Jesus, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Now is the day of salvation. He calls us to come to him. And I wonder sometimes how pitiful our excuses must be. How do you become a Christian? Michael, in a time of sadness, looked in her house for a religious book and picked up a copy of mere Christianity that a Christian friend had given to her mother. Many a a wary atheist has been snared by reading that book because it's a clever book by C.S. Lewis. And then through reading that, she went to the library and just checked out books by C.S. Lewis. She got the Chronicles of Narnia. She began to read about Aslan, the great lion that represented Christ. She began to understand that there was no other stream and that she was trapped by this great lion. Well, it begins with hearing about Christ and finding out who he is. And if you have some knowledge of Christ, and you can find it in the Old Testament, if you ever put one of those thousand pieces interlocking puzzles together, I usually wear out before I can get them together. They drive me nuts. But I went through a hospital pain clinic one time, and they give these to the patients for occupational therapy to soothe you down, but they just about blow my mind. I can't get them. Uh, They always have a picture of a big boat But it's got too much clouds and sea and everything else and then a boat right in the middle. And finally you figure out if you get these little straight edges together, you can start around the edges and get the edges. I'll give you a little tip. And then you can start putting the other stuff and finally you can make them fit together. Well, the puzzle of life starts with finding out about Jesus Christ. Who is he? Hearing about his love, about his plans, and what he is supposed to mean to you. And then Jesus Christ, does he win your respect for who he is in history? What is the testimony concerning history about him? If you begin to study him, then the interlocking pieces of the puzzle will become together. And don't put it off with cruddy little excuses that people are apt to bring up. That I got this fake uncle who was claimed to be a Christian, and he was an elder in the Presbyterian Church, and if that's Christianity, then I don't want any part of Christianity. Well, now, that may be a very good excuse when you're 15, or 16, or 17, or 18, or 19, or 20. But what kind of excuse is it going to be when you're 30? What kind of excuse is it going to be when you're 75? What kind of excuse is it going to be when you're 88 like Mr. Hoyt? Are you going to say, well, I'm not a Christian because I had this crummy uncle who was a deacon in a church and he was a big phony and he cheated in his business and he ran around on his wife and he got up there and made these prayers in church. And if that's Christianity, if you did that at 75, you would really be a basket case emotionally. That would not only be neurotic, that would be psychotic. That is really sick. You can't blame mama when you're 75 for the troubles you've got then You've got to pick out someone else to blame And then suppose you see people who don't perform like you think they should perform With all of these great things that we've got in the gospel You judge by the highest You judge by the highest Judge by Jesus Christ himself as he has offered to you in the gospel That's where the rub comes in you do not judge Beethoven's Ninth Symphony by the Mount Pisgah High School's rendition of it. Uh, you, you, you don't judge Jesus Christ by people, I hope Mount Pisgah isn't listening or I'll get bombed. But, uh, the, however that may be, uh, you can't do that. You must judge Jesus Christ by what Jesus Christ presents of himself in the gospel and your response to what he has said. And when you are willing to do that, then you must be willing to act upon what Jesus Christ has said. Malcolm Mugridge, smug atheist that he was, went all the way over to Russia as a died in the wool communist. And he began to think about communism being the answer to man's problems. But when he saw installing all of the obscurantist terrors that existed there, he knew that that was not the answer. And then he saw the Russian Orthodox Christians on Easter Sunday saying Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. And then what he was totally unprepared for was the living Christ and the lives of these people, and they changed him tremendously. He says these words. Don't read the New Testament unless you are prepared for a real shock. I warn you, when you really stay in relationship with Jesus Christ and continue to really read the New Testament and to submit yourself to the Sermon on the Mount and to submit yourself to the Apostle Paul, be prepared for all of your pursuits to be called into question. It's tough to be a Christian It's exciting, it's wonderful, but standing before the cross of Jesus Christ, our defenses are down, our bluff has been called, our alternative pursuits collapse. There we may understand that all power is a sham. All splendor is thorns like they wove together to put on the head of Jesus. All the stains and the styles of greatness are so much mockery here we are made aware at last of our own nothingness, which God Himself put on in the incarnation. God doesn't just reveal us to ourselves. He doesn't just show us our sham and falseness of pursuits. Or He doesn't just call into question our no gods and our false idols. He identifies with us in the full and in the tragedy of life. He identifies with our nothingness and he shows us his omnipotence by his grace. Standing before the cross we see God's purpose for our life for that cross shows us the love of God. So how do you become a Christian? Many of you have read Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer was on a quiz program, was on a, one of these talk shows. And when they got to the end of the talk show, they realized the moderator that he hadn't given Francis Schaefer enough time. And so he said, there's just one minute left, and we'll give this minute to Dr. Schaefer." Now Dr. Schaefer defined for us what is a Christian. And Someone has said this is a pretty good idea, to ask people, especially theologians and preachers, to say in a hurry what they mean. (laughs) Uh, Not only theologians, I've been asked to do that myself. Uh, So he looked up at that red second hand going around, and he said, a Christian is one who has bowed twice. He has bowed to God in submission and admitted that he is not, that is, he, the, he the, the penitent, is not autonomous, that is, that he cannot rule his own life. He is bowed in submission and admitted his need. And he is bowed a second time to accept gratefully what God has done for him in Jesus Christ. You can come to that point today. You can come to Christ before winter. You can come before the November rains fall and strip all the leaves off the trees. You can fall before the snow lies in the uplands. You can, fall, you, you can come to Christ now just in that simple act of devotion. We will not sing our last hymn, but we will stand in a prayer together. Our Heavenly Father, for those present here this morning who have come into this chapel not knowing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and who are confused by all of the puzzling things that happen in life and in the world about us. Help them to begin to put the borders together. Help them to see that Jesus Christ is the center of that puzzle and that when he is put in the right place, everything else is going to fall into place too. Help them not to get hung up on the church and not to be hung up on other people, but help them to be willing to bow once and admit their need and to bow twice and acceptance of him as Savior and Lord. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and guide, Be and abide with us all, now and forevermore.